This episode is sponsored by Salesforce. We leverage the power of our people and our products to improve the state of the planet together with our customers. For more information, visit salesforce.com slash sustainability. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, what's ahead for transportation in 2021, why big investors are falling short on stakeholder primacy, 2020 reflections from our 30 under 30s, and can a major oil company help make aviation sustainable? It's Project Runway, this week on 350. It's December 18th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350, our final episode of 2020. Joining me as she does every week from Midland Park, New Jersey, it's Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How are you today? I am um, blissfully winding down, not fast enough. There's still way too much mm-hmm. going on. There's, uh, you know, 2021 is already chalking up to be this amazing year here at Green Biz Group and hopefully in the world. And, uh, and you know, we're, we're, we're leaning into that. So it's busier than I want to be, but I'm looking forward to by, you know, the middle of next week to ratcheting down for 10 days and just, you know, not going anywhere. Where is there to go? But uh, enjoying the, the holidays a little bit uh, more spaciously. How about you? Lots of planning and, and uh, scheming <laughs> for next year. Uh, many things in the works. I have uh, just launched our, our you mentioned the 30 under 30 in the, in the intro, just launched the nominations for the next class of 30 under 30. We'll be running that project next May. So I encourage everyone to get online and find the nomination and show us the way. Tell us who we should, should celebrate. Um, obviously have to be less than 30 years old, but uh, any any form of climate action that benefits uh, the corporate sector is is uh, welcomed and, and um, encouraged. So get in there. Wait, well, you yeah. said any form of climate action, is it just limited to climate change? It, it, it's not limited to climate change. No, um, I see, I think of this broadly, like food systems, um, advocates and clean energy folks. Uh, it could be any number of different uh, projects and, and focuses uh, across the the community that, that informs the clean economy world that we want to be in. So it doesn't have to be US-centric, certainly, and also welcoming as many diverse candidates as we can. Um, we really want to celebrate those folks who are um, bringing voices that we don't normally hear to the dialogue. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more about that in the months ahead. But for now, let's go to the week that just passed with the Week in Review. So, Joel, I'm going to start by uh, putting you on the spot first. You had a really excellent feature on Shell, which I didn't really understand was so involved in sustainable aviation as uh, you lay out in this column. But but really, it's it, it's more about 
what uh, what we're going to see oil and gas companies doing in the future. And one of the things that they're really focusing on as they move forward is this this aviation game, um, how we're going to transform aviation, the aviation sector into something that's more sustainable. Can you, uh, first of all, I'd love to know why you got in this <laughs> on this in the first place. And what, what did you find? Well, how I got into this is uh, because for the past year, I've been working with Shell Aviation, uh, developing a video series that, that's online uh, with uh, thought leaders, uh, both in and out of Shell on what it will take to make aviation sustainable. Um, so talk to airline consultants, fuel producers, carbon offset experts, industry critics, as well as with Shell executives. So it turns out that there's two main things that you that you can do in um, aviation. I mean, there's a third one. One is operational efficiency, uh, and the planes have been getting more efficient for years, um, and as well as the way you take off and land and and idle at the airports. Those have been those directly go to fuel savings, and those have been around for a long time. But Beyond that, what you can do is, is use what's called sustainable aviation fuels, SAF or SAF for short, um, and offsets uh, because you can only use a portion of sustainable aviation fuels. You can't uh, maybe up to 50% and the supply is not even available yet to use that much on a flight. Um, so you can have to offset the rest. And it turns out that Shell has been in both the offset and the sustainable aviation fuel for, for years. So that's uh, how we got to this. I mean, they've been uh, providing fuel and lubricants for airports and airlines pretty much since the dawn of commercial aviation. And now they serve about 900 airports in 60 countries. Um, so they start, they realized because, you know, the major uh, oil and gas companies recognize that Petroleum is at best plateauing in terms of its uptake. And, and for lots of reasons, technology, social acceptance, uh, climate change, obviously, is going to start to decline. And they're looking for other markets, for better or for worse. Some of those include plastics production, which is uh, another story for another day. But but aviation is one of those. And so I uh, sort of want to look in and, and one company's journey, because there's a number of, you know, BP, Chevron, Philips, Total, uh, Neste, and out of Finland, there are major oil and gas companies that are doing something in the sustainable aviation arena. We had an opportunity here to look into one oil and, and gas uh, super major, as they're called, and talk about their journey and, and the complexity of it and the sort of ecosystem approach. Because no matter what, how Shell, how committed Shell is on this, you need fuel producers and blenders and distributors. You need airports and airlines. You need passengers and, and a lot of others. So just really tried to lay that out. Yeah, and you did a great job. I think one of the things that really intrigued me when I was reading it through is, is I first of all, I didn't realize how, how involved they were with uh, carbon removal. I thought, oh, yeah. And because I had just noticed that um, you mentioned BP a moment ago, they made a huge majority investment in in Finite Carbon, which is the largest U.S. forest carbon offset developer, that that happened this week. Just a lot going on with with the oil companies as they try to sort of, I guess, to redefine themselves and um, you know change the narrative, right? Because because they really have lost control of of the narrative. Uh, there's another great piece um, that we published this week by Terry Yossi, our our uh, 
our one of our columnists who's value who writes a column called Values Proposition. But his his thesis this week is the oil and gas industry's search for purpose in a climate disrupted world. So these two together just really made me think about what are these companies doing with themselves? How how could they play a role in the future? Could it be? Will we see them making more? Um, more investments in carbon offsets and in carbon offset marketplaces. Like, are they going to try to be, will they try to be control the cap and trade system? Like, could they be part of the, that ecosystem? And what happens if they are like, what do we want them to be? I don't know. I mean, you know, like if they can control that, that marketplace and they can keep doing what they're doing to the extent that they are, you know, and I think that's the concern from, from a lot of people that criticize sort of the, you know, that, that are less excited about carbon removal investments than me. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a fascinating area. I just, I'm, I'm curious, you know, is the, do you think they're really serious about this? Oh, they're, they're totally serious about this. I mean, it's a, they've, they've, they've have huge investments. Um, uh, in part and partnerships with there's a number of smaller firms that are that are producing these fuels and um, they've they have a, a number of partnerships around the world uh, to provide uh, sustainable aviation fuel uh, uh, and they have these uh, four trading desks uh, around the world in uh, London and Shanghai and Singapore and and in the U.S. The trading offsets uh, and you say well why is Shell trading offsets in fact they, I think they're one of the largest, if not the largest trader of offsets in the world. Why would they be in that business? Well, because a lot of their operations around the world are in jurisdictions that that now have cap and trade or some kinds of, of restrictions on emissions. And in order to meet those restrictions, they have to be buying offsets. The only way they can ensure that they have the millions and millions and millions of tons of offsets that they need to buy every year is to is to help uh, organize those markets, and so they're trading, um, as I said, uh, all over the world. And in, first and foremost, for their own uh, mandatory uh, regulated uh, uh, commitments, but also for the the growing voluntary market, all these companies uh, across all sectors that have net zero commitments um, are. Um, are needing to, to buy offsets. And I think this is the interesting piece. By the way, there's one other story uh, uh, that happened this past week. We didn't uh, cover it yet, but I think it, it happened sort of late in, in the week, is that United Airlines yeah. mm-hmm. committed mm-hmm. to zero out its greenhouse uh, gas emissions by 2050. Sure, a lot of companies have done that already, mm-hmm. these net zero mm-hmm. by mid, mid-century. Mm-hmm. But to do that without using offsets, and what they're doing is they're making some big investments in the technology, what's known as du- direct air capture, where you're actually taking the greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. And it's controversial because they're using those, they're capturing them and using them for enhanced oil recovery. And is that really mm-hmm. going to be you know, offsetting or just allowing us to produce more oil? This is a this is a storyline we're going to be tracking for quite a while as these technologies develop, as as the regulations around them uh, develop, as public acceptance develops. So a lot more to come uh, on airlines, offsets, biofuels, all of these topics <laughs> <laughs> that oh are in here, and the future of the oil and gas industry, which, by the way, our colleague Sarah Golden has also been writing about in her Energy Weekly newsletter. So uh, yeah, and Terry uh, Yossi's piece, uh, the oil and gas industry search for purpose in a climate disrupted world, um, 
you know, talks about some of the reasons that uh, that the industry is going through transformational factors. And the first one he mentions is that the industry's lost control of its societal narrative. Uh, you know, I think we're going to get to the point where where nuclear was uh, 20 or 30 years ago, where most people, at least in the United States, did not feel it was a necessary industry, even though it was generating power that they may, in fact, have been using. I don't know that we'll get to that with oil and gas, but we could in terms of public, uh, you know, in the next decade, let's say, uh, particularly with a new generation of Gen Z's coming in who who say, why are we doing this? So I, I, this is a fascinating storyline or storylines, really, that we'll be tracking for a long time to go. But can we move over to another topic uh, that's, that's also related to this, which is... Uh, uh, cap and trade, yeah. but specifically as it relates to environmental justice. Now, this is a great story. I know you, you, you're you big on this, so why don't you tell us about it? Well, so I, I and I think this is but actually one of the criticisms, um, you know, as we, we know, I, as of this particular time, we don't know exactly who will be the EPA chief, but um, one of the criticisms of Mary Nichols, um, as, who was a candidate, is a candidate, I should say, um, uh, for the position is is the structure of the California cap and trade system, and I'm not going to get the name correct um, because I'm not there. But the uh, it was it's a fascinating. As we know, California has one of the most active uh, markets. Um, the policy took effect in 2013. It regulates what 450 entities, accounting for about 85 percent of California emissions. There's there's a marketplace here in the Northeast where I am, but this one this one's sort of the the big kahuna, if you will. And, you know, as I was reading the story, and I think, great, cap and trade, we love it. We love the idea. You know, um, it helps people cut emissions, um, generates money for other climate initiatives, like it's fueling these initiatives, if you will. But the the, the gotcha is that um, they're not exactly benefiting the, the communities that, uh, that are being most affected by climate change. So, uh, this particular piece, um, which is a reprint from Yes Magazine, um, California can California's cap and trade address environmental justice by uh, freelance journalist Julia Rosen, and she really does a great job at at um, pointing to the inequities of of the policy, how it doesn't um, necessarily go back into programs for communities of color. Many of these facilities, as we know, are in community are affecting communities of color uh, most severely. People have higher rates of asthma, um, air pollution in those, in these areas, like, for example, um, the Chevron Richmond refinery, right? Um, and, and just sort of the things that are happening in the community around that. You know, it's great that the system is in place to help try to mitigate these emissions, but then where does the money go, you know, that's being raised from it? So it's just a, um, you know, for me, it was just one of those kind of like, Oh, aha! Like I didn't think about this, and, and there's so many things that, in my, in my privileged worldview, that I haven't thought about in the right way, and this has got me thinking differently. Yeah, and it's not just uh, where does the money go, because you know we think, all right, there's a cap and trade system in place. Okay, we've got that done. We can wipe our hands of that. But um, you know, it, it just means that that you can't pollute more than you've been polluting, or maybe you have to pollute a little bit less, but you're still polluting. And, and so all of the problems going on around the high rates of respiratory and cardiovascular disease that happen in primarily in what, what are called frontline communities, often communities of color, those continue. And, uh, and so the people who this is supposed to be benefiting 
uh, are still suffering. And so mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's sort of what we were talking about with net zero. It's like net zero by 2050. But yeah, in the meantime, we have to be making progress every single day. And and those uh, aren't as companies aren't as com accountable to that because they've made these great audacious commitments, but they're 30 years hence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's it, it actually it's um, as we know, we'll have a new administration in place next year and in the United States. And it, it, it's interesting to me that carbon policy hasn't been a, a major topic in the last few weeks, like policy, like carbon pricing, carbon innovation and the potential for funding R&D. And there's a lot of activity and focus on what could happen there. But less, I'm hearing less chat about, let's put a, a federal carbon price in, in, in motion. And I think the dialogue is changing a little bit, um, you know, as far as where we think we might focus our policies. I think I, I, I'm hoping to see more focus on innovation rather than, okay, let's, you know, let's try to handle what we're, you know, yes, we're creating this. Okay, let's make money from it. You know what I'm saying? So it's just, um, I think this, the dialogue is shifting. And, and this one, like I said, this, I read this story and I, I thought, wow, um, I just didn't think about this. So it was a great, it's a great, it's a really great investigative report. Yeah. And, and, and the tension between doing less bad and doing more good has been one that that it permeates pretty much everything that we talk about in sustainable business and that's certainly what's going on here and that brings us to the last story to talk about this week which is uh, about uh, how uh, so many companies of you know, uh, ceos of b of a of blackrock state street uh, talk about uh, this thing called stakeholder primacy that we have to look at the the range of stakeholders, not just the investors, financial stakeholders. They're talking the talk, but they're not necessarily walking the walk. And this is a great piece by uh, our uh, contributor, Sarah Murphy, who covers a lot of uh, ESG and, and sustainable finance issues. And they came out of the uh, 2020 uh, SASB, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board Symposium, their, the annual meeting that they had earlier this month. Uh, and you had the CEOs of those three companies, B of A, BlackRock, and State Street, talking about the role of the private sector in addressing societal challenges and why the need for companies to integrate ESG into their, not just their investment, uh, investor relations departments, but into their corporate strategies is, is no longer optional, at least on the part of, 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 of shareholders. And Larry, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, has been talking about this, about we need to take in into consideration all, all stakeholders, not just shareholders. But the reality is, is that <laughs> easy to say, hard to do. And that all of these institutions in, in Sarah Murphy's piece, you know, are still their leading financiers of fossil fuels. They're still um, uh, not as voting supportive. down, yeah, voting down yeah, policies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and 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 you know, turning these big ships uh, is is a challenge. Uh, now, I will say before I shut up here that uh, a week after the event uh, or so, BlackRock. Uh, uh, said that they will step up efforts to tackle boards on, on ESG issues by voting in favor of proposals from activist shareholders where it believes the company is not changing quickly enough. So they've been called out. Uh, and they, you know, they're saying one thing and doing another. They've been called out. They are, are, are say they're going to change. We'll see 
uh, what actually happens during the 2021 annual meeting uh, season coming up later mm-hmm. this spring. Yeah, and it, it really... I hope they do, because the fact is we really need these companies. We we know that we're going to have a public financing challenge we, with with the pandemic. Um, you know, states and, and local governments are really hurting for money. And, you know, th- there's a lot of <laughs> well, there's a lot of things we need to spend money on. And so we really need the finance, the financial services com- companies like BlackRock, like Bank of America, like State Street, like Morgan Stanley, like I'll just like everyone um, to really be stepping up, um, not just the talk, but the walk. Yeah, I've been having some great conversations about that this month uh, that are going to accelerate after the new year uh, in preparation for our GreenFin conference in April. And and I can tell you that these topics um, are front and center now at some of the biggest financial services firms and increasingly at some of the big, world's biggest companies, uh, this whole ESG thing, which not very long ago was just a nice to do, a uh, socially responsible investing kind of thing, has suddenly, and it is rather suddenly, become a core uh, interest, core challenge, a core topic inside companies. It's, it's just fascinating to watch, and it's one of the many things I'm excited about for 2021. Through the month of December, we've been touching base with the GreenBiz analyst team to discuss the policies and trends on their mind as we bid 2020 adieu and look forward to 2021 and the inauguration of a far more climate-friendly U.S. President Joe Biden. So far, we've featured segments on carbon policy, clean energy priorities, circular economy developments, and the future of food. Our final conversation explores what's down the road for transportation. Joining me to chat about what could be on the roadmap is Katie Fehrenbacher, senior writer and transportation analyst for GreenBiz. Hey, Katie. Hi, Heather. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. Um, and I just read your column, so I'm going to pepper you with questions about uh, your last trend piece for 2020. Excellent. You described 2020 as a pivotal year for organizations, policies, and the financial community, in one in which they started taking sustainable and electric transportation more seriously as an emerging and powerful market. Can you share some examples of policies that are signaling this shift? Yes. So I think 2020 it was really important turning point for two main things. Um, the first is uh, it was a key turning point in growth for the electric, electric vehicle industry. Um, and the other thing is that I think um, overall society started to take climate change much more seriously, and that led to some very important policies. Um, one of the policies that did come out of um, the uh, realization that climate change is a crisis and is happening now was um, in California. The California governor, Gavin Newsom, signed the executive order banning new gas car sales by 2035. And he did that in direct response to the historic wildfires in California. So he wanted to take dramatic action on um, decarbonizing transportation, which in the state is um, the largest uh, contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and actually has been rising in recent years before the pandemic. So Gavin Newsom kind of saw the wildfires as this catalyst to enact this legislation, which I think was 
really interesting, really powerful. Um, there was other legislation around uh, transportation that I thought was interesting. The California Air Resources Board um, set rules for making trucks go to zero emissions over the coming years. So that's for you know anywhere from like pickup trucks to large heavy duty semi trucks and um, and CARB set these kind of different tiered depending on different models and different types of companies, but um, they kind of started that process this year. So that was really exciting as well. So you mentioned California. Is there, is there other states or cities where there's good innovation happening? I'm just curious what other things have got you intrigued. Yeah. Um, so the East Coast states actually kind of signed on to that um, specific CARB legislation. So they um, are using that as a model also to move trucks and buses um, on the East Coast um, towards these same types of zero emission goals um, over the years. And then in cities across the country, or sorry, across the world really, have started to kind of create these low emission and zero emission zones in city centers. So London is a prime example of this, but um, kind of a lot of cities took more dramatic action around phasing out gas vehicles um, of various types within city centers. So that's an exciting new emerging type of um of policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that gasoline ban is really interesting. Do you anticipate more of those? I think in the States, I'm not sure right now. Um, I think that in um, other countries, European countries and Asian countries, I think we'll see more of these gas car bans. Um, like I said, in cities have actually been the real leader across the world. A lot of them in Europe, um, London, Paris, Madrid, um, there's been a lot of progress around um, these kind of gas car bans, but in different ways. So they haven't, you know, at the city level, they haven't pushed um, sales of new vehicles, but they are creating these zones where you're kind of blocking internal combustion vehicles from coming in. But I think in in some regions, I think in, in the world, I think the gas car sales ban actually could be a really interesting model um to kind of to phase out gas cars and you know kind of the one of the big hopes is that you know at some point um you know the the federal government will maybe take a cue from california and follow in those footsteps but um not sure we're actually going to see that but we could be hopeful for the biden administration Got it. Got it. So you have been covering fleets. It's been one of your favorite coverage areas this year. And I I have a question for you in that regard. I've noticed uh, a theme. Renewable natural gas has been written about and talked about more as a bridge fuel for fleet managers. So I'm curious, how important is it? uh, And what developments do you anticipate in 2021? So I think renewable natural gas um, used as a transportation fuel is really interesting. Um, the main um, application for it is for companies with large natural gas fleets like a UPS um, that have already acquired natural gas vehicles um, within the past, you know, five years, six years, seven years, something like that. So they want to keep running these vehicles, but they want to um, remove the emissions associated with those natural gas vehicles. Um, or, you know, maybe five years ago, it was actually very, um, popular for sustainable focused companies to buy natural gas vehicles. It's less popular today because now we're moving to 
even closer to zero emissions. So states like California are, are not incentivizing natural gas trucks anymore. But if you add the renewable natural gas portion of it to make it zero emissions or even negative emissions, then that's a really interesting opportunity for a fleet that already has natural gas trucks and natural gas infrastructure already built out at its facility. I think uh, when it comes to like looking at the growth of renewable natural gas as a transportation fuel, I think it's held back by supply. So there's all these, you know, various sites where renewable natural gas can be created, um, you know, whether it's like a dairy farm or a wastewater treatment plant or a landfill, but it's actually a really laborious and kind of messy and time-consuming process to put that infrastructure in place to get the renewable natural gas from that site and then and then take it to the um, the transportation fueling center for the company. So I think supply is really the um, biggest barrier. As, as soon as companies like Clean Energy, which is the largest renewable natural gas producer in the U.S., as soon as they offer the fuel, companies like UPS put down contracts to buy it. So I think in 2021, the biggest issue with renewable natural gas will continue to be um, its lack of supply. There's a lot of demand for it right now. Mm -hmm. Isn't that kind of the same case with with the EV transition, though? I mean, as you look at what's needed there in the infrastructure, um, I'm just curious, like, do you see these developing side by side? Uh, will this slow down the transition to full-fledged electrification? Do you see companies making a, a choice about one or the other? Um, I think that it will not slow down um, the introduction of electric fleets. I think that the companies that are buying renewable natural gas for their fleets already have natural gas trucks. So there's there's a portion of companies that have already kind of made this choice for natural gas. And then there's all these other companies that um, they need, they have diesel trucks and they want to decarbonize their fleets. And a lot of those companies are going to choose to go with electric um, because, you know, it's becoming increasingly cheaper to buy these vehicles and operate these vehicles. So I don't think that they're really competitive. I think that they can be used for different purposes. And I think eventually Anything that can electrify will electrify. And um, so, you know, uh, companies like who do a last mile type of delivery like Amazon or FedEx or UPS, they're not going to be wanting to use renewable natural gas when the market for electric last mile delivery trucks is starting to get so hot, like the prices are coming down dramatically and um, and the models are uh, more and more models are being available. So I think that you know, renewable natural gas will continue to have a very specific type of application. But I think um, ultimately, you know, all transportation is going to go electric um, if it can. And then maybe some of the like very large vehicles will remain on fuels like renewable natural gas or renewable diesel. And um, uh, and, com- and companies that already own natural gas trucks and fueling infrastructure will potentially continue to use that type of infrastructure and system. Um, but people that are that companies that are starting on a green field, um, I think will increasingly opt for electric. Mm-hmm. Okay. One last question. In your uh, piece this week, thinking about the trends that uh, will drive us, no pun intended, you note that public transit is entering a state of crisis. 
Now, this is a very local issue, but what can businesses and the incoming Biden administration do to spur new innovation and, and new new policies and models there? I mean, I think the main thing that public transit needs is federal funding and help from the federal government. Um, there's just transit agencies across the United States that are you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, potentially billions of dollars uh, behind and budget shortfalls because of the lack of ridership, the increased costs around safety, um, you know, uh, not having their full staff um, to operate their vehicles. So I think they're, the, the main thing that they need is, is help and funding. Um, the federal government has been looking at different ways to help them. Um, but probably anything that's going to happen is going to be, it's going to fall short of what most of these transit agencies need. When it comes to innovation, there are a variety of ways that transit agencies can embrace innovation. Um, some of them are um, kind of working with local transportation planners and, and working with movements like the slow streets movement, which is you know, um, uh, shutting down neighborhood streets to, through traffic and um, trying to kind of boost biking and pedestrian use of those streets and optimizing cities more around people and less around cars. So that's not a direct way that transit can help, but that's a way that, you know, we can get people to, you know, adopt these alternative modes of moving around and not just hopping back into their cars. And I think they can also, uh, transit agencies can also work with some of the newer micromobility companies, whether it's like scooter companies or, you know, bike sharing companies and, you know, help make offloads, you know, some of those ridership onto these kind of alternative systems and, and work in better ways with that. I mean, the, the ride hailing companies, Lyft and Uber, you know, have been struggling as well, but um, potentially, you know, when they work together with transit agencies, they can kind of help offload like some of this, some of this uh, ridership that is, is not going into public transit because of the safety concerns. So there's a variety of things that around innovation um, that I think kind of forward, forward looking cities can, can do, but I think ultimately what they need is, is money right now. And that's only going to be coming from the federal government. Katie, thanks for dropping by the podcast to share some of your thoughts. I hope you have a healthy and happy holiday with your family and um, really appreciate all you're doing. Thanks so much, Heather. So glad to be here. Same to you and happy holidays to all the Green Biz readers out there. We'll leave you now with uh, some some thoughts from the 30 under 30 honorees from years past. Uh, just one one way to end our podcast, our last podcast of the year on a, a hopeful, happy note. Um, and thanks to everyone who contributed. And you'll be hearing more from chief sustainability officers and other sustainability professionals after the new year. Hi, I'm Jeremy Bond, Chief Storyteller at Bond Studio. The tragic reminders throughout 2020 of our country's battle with the cancers of racism, violence, and discrimination against the Black community have really emboldened my commitment to, one, working to increase BIPOC representation in our space. It's so needed and so long overdue. 
And two, using visual arts as a medium to amplify often suppressed environmental justice stories around the country. For me and my company, 2021 is all about purposeful storytelling with intent to humanize sustainability and galvanize our community to more deeply and empathetically embrace underserved communities of color impacted by climate change, pollution, and beyond. I am so, so excited to build relationships with leaders and organizations seeking to forge new narratives in this arena. My name is Holly Beal, and I lead the Community Environmental Sustainability Program for Microsoft's Data Center Community Development Team. In working directly with local community groups throughout 2020, I've learned two main lessons, flexibility and trust. I've learned to be flexible with my expectations for timelines and deliverables of projects as local groups grapple with the best ways to move forward during these highly unexpected and unpredictable upsets in, in business as usual. I've also learned to trust those local groups to be the best resource for figuring out those new paths forward. And I'll be taking these lessons into 2021 and beyond. I hope you're staying positive and testing negative. This is Ben Price with St. Cobain Nova External Ventures. St. Cobain is the largest building materials manufacturer in the world, and the Nova External Ventures team invests in and partners with startups to disrupt and innovate across the construction value chain. 2020 has introduced the need to adopt new technologies. I'm focused on the built environment or building and construction space. This space has been known to move slowly and has traditionally really been a, a laggard in terms of technology adoption disruption, and the adoption of increasing efficiencies. With COVID, every space has been forced to evolve, adopt digital solutions, and become more nimble. As someone focused on disruption of technology in the space, this has been a positive force and really an opportunity. It's introduced greater ability to gain traction on technology, which supports adoption of sustainable approaches. As a result of this, my priority going into 2021 is to use this openness to new concept and speed of adoption to introduce more sustainability-focused startups and innovations across the built environment. Hi, my name is Catherine Avocado, and I'm the project coordinator at the District of Columbia Sustainable Energy Utility. So the events of 2020 have changed my perspective as a sustainability professional in very many ways. Besides the pandemic, one of the most serious public health issues of our time, we had another we had other risks that happened. For example, there were wildfires in Australia and in the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. And then later in the year, we had some more in California. These mostly impacted uh, people in close proximity to forests and caused a lot of loss for biodiversity. But a crucial realization from the year is that the world is so much more connected than we ever thought. And it's no longer true that what happens in one part of the world may not impact people that are so far away. And I've studied a range of supply chains and business strategies, and it used to be true that once one part of the world is affected, say, by an earthquake or a flood, the operation would diversify to less risky regions. But now we are reckoning with a very different reality and we're, we're asking very new questions that haven't uh, probably been asked before. When it comes to business sustainability, 
the main thing we need to do is accelerate collective action and pay more close attention to things that are risks, basically, that are not so much in our localities. So we can start by doing better for the environment. For example, we can start by restoring forests and biodiversity, maintaining them even though we don't live in forested regions. My priority in 2021 is to write another book chapter and increase awareness on energy and biodiversity issues that are connected. So particularly, I will talk about the charcoal supply chain, which has led to a lot of forest, forest loss and wildfires. Uh, which have often flown under the environmental radar, first because uh, they're usually on a smaller scale and they're in very remote regions of Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America and also Asia. But nonetheless, they're so important for biodiversity. Uh, this is very critical because many supply chains have grappled with forest loss today and some of them are grappling with deforestation and they're looking for strategies. But what we will show here is that the smaller fires are just as critical and we need more people to do more. We need companies to do more for the planet because it will improve the it will improve the quality of life for people that live near the forests, but also for the rest of us, uh, the human race. Hi, I'm Jose Salazar, and I'm a senior specialist of corporate sustainability at CSR One. As a professional, I spend a lot of time trying to understand more about risks, how to better manage them, and how to advise clients on them. But living through the impacts of this pandemic certainly makes me rethink a lot about the things that went wrong, the importance of getting the risk management job right from the beginning, and that clear and consistent communications matters. For instance, in Taiwan, where I live, the government along business and civil society had a very effective pandemic response by taking over a hundred specific measures as early as late January when the reports were just coming in from Wuhan. Measures that we now are well familiar with like public gatherings and travel restrictions, wearing masks and regularly washing hands, were all well communicated and implemented and this led to containing the virus before further spreading. Now we're very fortunate not to have had any local cases since mid-April. Despite this, neither the government nor business or civil society are taking any chances and these measures remain effective in order to prevent any potential mishandling of people arriving from overseas. I think adopting this level of risk aversion is very important to prevent any crisis, particularly against risks that we do not fully understand like this pandemic or climate change. For the years ahead, there are three things. Uh, I like to commit myself as priorities. Number one, to be paranoid, not in the sense of being negatively worried or irrational, but in the sense of not making assumptions or disregarding details that have the potential to evolve into bigger events. If a risk can be addressed, it should be addressed. Number two, to be clear and consistent in communications and bringing a call to action to my messages. And number three, to lead with empathy. The pandemic is first and foremost a human tragedy. It has hit those that were disadvantaged the most and has exacerbated all the social inequity issues. Many of us have lost dear ones during this time, so it's important to bring our humanity forward and support each other. Hi, I'm Sarah Reed, a program manager at the Electrification Coalition. The biggest way 2020 has changed my work is an even deeper emphasis on sustainability. The messaging from the mayors and public fleets I work with around the U.S. has consistently been that we still have to act on climate and cannot afford to back down from the challenge. Even despite budget restrictions and other barriers, many cities continue to make progress and the EC is working to provide support on policy and other long-term impact solutions when funds are short in the immediate term. Policies like 
EV first, EV readiness can help ensure that going forward, all purchasing choices and building will be focused on the importance of sustainability, especially in transportation. In addition, our work in freight electrification broadly at the EC is also picking up as companies emphasize the importance of climate alongside public health in 2020. So all this has me excited for 2021 overall as we continue to come up with creative solutions and benefit from more climate-focused federal administration here in the U.S. And the emphasis on this issue has only strengthened. And with EVs, we are really only at the tip of the iceberg. And that's our 350 podcast for this week and for this year. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350. You'll find out more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned this week. And you can also check out our six free e-newsletters. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your comments, questions and tips. As we said, Green Biz 350 will be taking the rest of the year off. But Heather and I will be back on January 8th for a New Year's edition of Green Biz 350. Uh, until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group. Well, first of all, merry happy everything to you, Heather. Merry happy everything to you, Joel. <laughs> Actually, we didn't do that, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just it's a been a it's been an amazing year. I mean, like just horrible in so many ways but also so hopeful in so many ways and i hope we carry that into 2021 well we always do at green biz i know i just hope the rest of you do too so merry happy everything to all of you thank you so much for being our listeners this year more coming up after the new year's i'm joel mccower thanks so much for tuning in This episode is sponsored by Salesforce. With Sustainability Cloud, you can track, analyze, and report environmental data to take climate action. For more information, visit salesforce.com sustainability.